Good morning. The scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8, um, page 1139. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, to one abnormally born. This is God's word. Well, this is my home church, and I'm really glad to be here again. I'd like to show you something before we uh, begin our um, study of God's word. And I have a copy of the uh, Missions Conference brochure. And I'd like to show you something that's really uh, pretty wonderful. If you go down the list of our missionaries, um, there are 23 of our own people who are either former members or are members of Westgate Church who are now serving in missions. Uh, there's Leslie Bridge, who is uh, also um, a member of CREW. There's Mark and Chris Crooks. Uh, Mark was our form, was a former youth pastor here. He and his wife, Chris, are with team in Italy. There's Sheila Fabiano. She was here uh, at Westgate during when she was training for nursing, and she's in Angola. There's uh, uh, Sue and myself. There's Meg Given, an old, uh, an old New Englander and, uh, and uh, a member of our, uh, a former member of our church. There is uh, Steve and Natasha Hope with international students, you know them, Gail Rennie, Prison Ministries, uh, and then some of our children, Ian and uh, Becca Rideout, and Kevin and Kevin Rideout and his wife, Krista. Uh, they're both serving in uh, Niger. There's Lynn Stapleton. Uh, she and her husband, uh, Russ, were with us while he was uh, uh, getting his education. Uh, Russ has now passed away, but Lynn is still uh, serving in Asia. There are uh, uh, Chris and uh, Kim Swanson, again, uh, campus uh, crew, and um, Jim Roten. Uh, Jim and his wife were uh, members here, and uh, uh, Ellen has has passed away as well. And then we have uh, we have some of our young people who uh, our church doesn't support as yet who are um, also serving in missions. There's uh, Amy uh, Andreessen, who is now Johnson, and they are up in New Hampshire working with young people. There is Amy Burnett. Uh, Amy uh, Polly and her family uh, uh, were with us for a long time, and Amy now is and her uh, husband are in Thailand. And we have uh, uh, Drew Rideout, who is uh, finishing his... Um, work uh, his studies to become a doctor, or he is a doctor now, but he's finishing his residency 
and he is uh, on his way to the mission field. And then we have, uh, we have two couples in Asia, uh, uh, Randy and Rama, uh, Robin, who are in Asia, and also um, Adam and Amy, who are in Asia as well. If you add them all up, it's uh, 23. Praise the Lord. And you know, our church was founded by uh, Wayne Anderson. And during his time as the leader of the uh, uh, college group down at, um, at Park Street Church, there was a group there, and there were scores, multiple, uh, I don't know the exact number, but there are scores and scores of young people from that group who are now in the mission field, many of whom are um, missionaries that we support. And then Wayne came and uh, founded our church. So our church was founded as a mission-sending church. This is our heritage, and it is um, something that it is my prayer that our our leaders will will carry on. Will carry on this um, this tradition of missions. That's my charge to you. <laughs> that that the light will shine. Uh, uh, brightly here at home, but also will shine far away. And may you never give your heart rest until you see our community here, one for Christ. That's my prayer. Now let's uh, open in prayer. What is the verse that uh, is in your bulletin? It's, the Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. And may Westgate Church continue to be such a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I do thank you for uh, our home church. I thank you for the, the uh, light that has shined far away, and I pray that it would shine brightly at, here at home, that uh, you would not only flood this land but the nations with your glory. We pray this. And we also thank you for uh, your son, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and who was raised again to be our Savior and Lord. Now, this morning, we ask that you would forgive us of the sinful things that we have thought, that we have said, and that we have done. Forgive us for Christ's sake. And as we open the scriptures this morning, we pray that we would not only open our hearts, but that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And for myself, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my King and my Redeemer. Amen. Now, this morning... Um, I was reminded about uh, why we send why we why we send missionaries into the mission field. That was the subject of our uh, Sunday school class this morning, and there was a sad conversation that one of my colleagues had when he returned home from furlough from the United States. He told me that there was a deacon in his church in his home church that asked this question. He said, why should we send our money and manpower to foreign countries when we have so many needs here at home? Why indeed? But perhaps you have that same question. So let me answer this question by reminding you of the gospel message. And let's reread our verses from our text this morning, which is in uh, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
and I'll start reading at verse 1. And I apologize, my uh, 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 bilingual Bible is the uh, New King James. It's a little different than your pew Bible or the uh, uh, English Standard Bible. Those are the Bibles that I believe you have. So let me, let me read, um, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Paul says that he wants to remind the Corinthians to remember the gospel message that they received and upon which they built their faith. And this is my request for you this morning as well, that you would remember the gospel message. Verse 2, by which you are saved if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He continues by telling them that this is the gospel message that brought to them salvation, unless they believed in vain, unless they were, how shall I put it, triflers. And what does it mean to be a trifler? Well, the gospel is meant to be the core, in the core of our very being. It's who we are. People who are redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if the gospel is something that you merely add to your life, forgive me, but you're a trifler. It is far more serious than that. It is something that is the very core of our being. So he says in verse 2, unless you hold fast to the gospel or the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And to be a trifler, to have a trifling faith, is a vain faith. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, I like the translation of the NIV and the ESV. In it, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Our gospel message is of first importance. It is the thing that defines us. It defines the work of Christ. It defines why he came. That we might that we might be reconciled to God, and like we heard this morning, that we would be restored to a worship of God. It is of first importance. And what is the gospel message? That's found in verses uh, three and four. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And this is not just the message that. The Apostle Paul preached. But this gospel message is the message that was proclaimed by all the apostles and by Christ himself. Let me just read to you some of the, uh, of the preaching and the teaching of the Apostle Peter. Now, this is from Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 21. In verse 15, Peter says, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And then in verse 19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. And from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43, in in verses 39 and 40, 
Peter says he was put to death, but God raised him up. And in verse 43, he continues by saying, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. This was Peter's preaching. Now consider what he taught. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he said, Christ died for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And that he was raised again through the Spirit. So Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now listen to the words of Christ himself. Thus it is written, he said, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. That's found in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Again, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So this is the gospel according to Christ and his apostles. With this in mind, let's review three significant things that happened on that last day of the earthly life of Christ here on earth. The first significant thing that happened on that day was that Christ suffered willingly for our sins. In the garden, he prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then when he saw Judas and the soldiers approaching, he did not run, he did not hide, he did not fight, but he willingly went forth to meet them, saying, Whom do you seek? And when they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am he. Now, Christ suffered willingly for our sins, and we need to let this truth sink deeply into our heart. He did not die because he could not help it. He did not suffer because he could not escape. All of the soldiers of Pilate's garrison could not have taken him unless he had been willing. He loved us and gave himself willingly in order to atone for our sins. Now today, Christ is just as willing to receive and pardon us as he was willing then to suffer, bleed, and die for our sins. So no one can say, my sins are too great. How can God forgive them? If we are not saved, the fault is not with him that he was unwilling to forgive us. But the fault is entirely our own. And then there's the second significant thing that happened on that day. Christ was declared to be innocent. I don't know if you understand the significance of this. He was an innocent sacrifice. Now, we are told that the Jewish council tried to create false charges against Jesus in order to sentence him to death. 
But even though they came forward to accuse him, none of the accusations were credible. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and 60, uh, <clears throat> Matthew says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. And then observe that when he was let, when he at last appeared before Pilate, that Pilate declared three times, I find no fault in him. We find this in John chapters 18 and 19. Now, which of us could ever say that we have never sinned? Yet, you know, Christ could say to his enemies, which of you can convict me of sin? He was unique. He was a sinless man. Which of us can stand before the judgment throne of God and be found faultless? Yet God said of Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said that once at the day of his baptism, and he said that again on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Christ was innocent. Now, why is his innocence important? Well, let me relate to you the story, the salvation testimony of someone I know quite well. This friend had heard that Christ loved her and died on the cross for her sins. But she thought, my mother loves me. Why would her sacrifice not be sufficient to pay for my sins. Why not? Well, the answer was, if my friend's mom died for sin, she would have died for her own sins and therefore could not die for the sins of her daughter. We must all pay the penalty for our own sins. And when... This young woman heard that Christ, the innocent Christ, had suffered and died for her sins. She repented and believed the gospel. This was her testimony. This is why it's significant. We need not another sinner to die for us, but a sinless sacrifice. And that's who Christ was. They declared at the time of his trial, I've... Pilate declared at the time of his trial, I find no fault in him. Now, continuing with Pilate. In the first instance, when Pilate declared, I find no fault in him, Pilate offered his Jewish accu- uh, the Jewish accusers of Christ a compromise. I will declare Jesus guilty. And this is to satisfy you. Now, this is implied in the text. But then in exchange, I will release him according to your Passover custom. Remember, he said, you have have a custom that I will release to you a prisoner on the Passover. The fact that he was going to release Christ, who would be a prisoner, meant that he would be condemned. So Pilate sought this compromise to ease his own conscience and to give the Jews what they wanted. But they would have none of it. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. And then after, after that, they said, give us Barabbas. Release to us Barabbas. And John adds, now Barabbas 
was a robber. And so the innocent Christ went to the cross in the place of the guilty Barabbas. And this is the third significant thing that happened on that day. And why is that? It's because it's a picture of our salvation. Listen as I read the teaching of the prophet Isaiah, which explains what happened on the cross. And I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 53, verses uh, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, this prophecy was given by the prophet Isaiah somewhere in the 7th century before Christ, and it explains why he suffered and died. It tells us clearly that God placed our sins upon Christ, who took upon himself the punishment for those sins. And when he did so, we were made whole. We, like the guilty Barabbas, were set free when Christ took our place upon the cross. Now think of it in this way. If I have broken a traffic law and I am, have gone to trial and have been found guilty, I must pay the penalty. But if I cannot pay the penalty and a friend comes and pays the penalty for me, he took my penalty upon himself and he paid it. And that's what Christ did. He took upon himself the penalty for our sins. And if someone else takes our penalty and pays our fine, we are free. And since Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, we too are free. That's what happened when Christ went to the cross. And that's why when the innocent Jesus went to the cross in the place of the guilty Barabbas, it is a picture of what happened to us on the day we repented and believed. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I've sinned, but my sins are not really so bad. A lot of people think that way these days. They say, I'm certainly no worse than others, and in fact, many church people are far worse than I am. I think we've probably all heard this. Now, why does our goodness not impress God? It does not impress God because he's holy. My friend, let me tell you plainly that both your sins and mine are far worse than we have ever imagined. And we can see the terrible nature of our sin by the extent to which Christ had to suffer in order to atone for them. Now let's look at some of the sufferings of Christ. First of all, Christ suffered the sorrow of being betrayed by a disciple and abandoned by his friends. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever been betrayed by a friend and abandoned uh, 
by others? Have you ever been betrayed and abandoned by your friends? Then you know how much Christ suffered. Also, Christ suffered the humiliation of being falsely accused and tried by those whom he one day would, will judge. You realize that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, Pilate, all one day will stand before Jesus Christ and be judged by him? And he stood there listening as these guys falsely accused him and, un, and unjustly condemned him. Now, if you've ever been falsely accused, you know how much Christ had, how much Christ suffered. And in addition to that, he remains silent. Peter said, referring to his trial, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to one who judges justly. Have you ever remained silent in the face of false accusations? Frankly, I can't think of one time that I've ever done that. But if you have, you know how much he suffered. And then furthermore, there was the physical pain. He was beaten with fists, and then he was whipped. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. And he bore his cross to the place of his execution upon his raw, bleeding shoulders. And then there on Golgotha, they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, and there he hung between heaven and earth until he died. All the while, people were mocking him. That is how serious your sins and my sins were. Are. That's how serious they are. Christ had to suffer to that extent to make atonement for them. Now we think our sins are not that bad, but let me tell you, God does not agree. He said, For all have sinned and come short of his glory. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he added, The wages of sin is death. And it's that death that Christ took upon himself when he died on the cross. Now be wise. On that great day when we will all stand before God to give an account, it will not matter what you think about your sins or what I think about mine. What will matter is what God thinks about them. And we can see what God thinks about them by looking at the sufferings of Christ. You need to come to him and find forgiveness and cleansing of those sins. Now, okay, how do we know that this is true, that Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins and his death was not just a cruel injustice? The gospel message says that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose again from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. In his resurrection, Jesus was declared with power by God to be his son. That's what Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says. He was declared with power to be the son of God through the resurrection from the dead. 
Listen, our text says that the resurrection had many first century eyewitnesses. We see this in verses 6 through 8 of our text. Notice the resurrected Christ was seen by the apostles both individually and twice when they were gathered together in one room. He was seen by more than 500 brothers at one time and then by James and by the, by the Apostle Paul himself. Let me read together <clears throat> verses 5 through 8 in our text from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. And that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain at, the, at present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, the Corinthians could go and, and talk with them. After that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So there were many first century eyewitnesses. But listen, when we Christians proclaim the resurrection from the dead, we are saying that Jesus Christ is alive and that you can meet him. Do you remember that verse in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Well, this verse, first of all, is referring to an apostate church. And Jesus is standing outside the door of that church and knocking to come in. Unfortunately, that's the situation in many churches today. Jesus is outside and he's knocking to come in, but we got the doors locked. But it also refers to the human heart. He's standing at the door. Because it says, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is either true or it is not. When you repent and believe the gospel and invite Christ to come into your heart, he either comes in or he does not. And what we Christians are saying is that Christ comes in. What? Is there a billion Christians on earth today? Approximately a billion. And we are declaring that Christ is alive and that you can know him. But you know there's a catch. Isn't there always a catch? Let me tell you what the catch is. The catch is this. Is that... You need to be willing to make him the Lord of your life. When he comes in, he's not coming in as a guest. He's coming in to take possession. That's why we call him Lord. Now, Jesus has a word for everyone who's a skeptic. And that's found in John chapter 7, verse 17. In John chapter 7, verse 17, he says... If any man chooses to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or is on my own authority. That verse says that if you are willing to do God's will, 
You take that step, and that is a step of repentance. Then you will know whether his teaching is from God or not. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You'll know. Is that true or is that not true? Now, if we are not saved, the fault is not that the truth cannot be known, but the fault is entirely our own because we will not surrender our will. When I was on campus, which is about as long as Meg was on campus, <laughs> we used to say this. We used to give this verse to the unbelievers. They would say, oh, yeah, he died. This is a guy that died 2,000 years ago. How are you going to know that he was raised from the dead? How can you possibly know? Well, the way that you know is by willing, being first to, uh, uh, and be willing to do God's will. Otherwise, you're just a trifler. That kind of faith is vain. I'm wondering if there's people here today that don't know the Savior. Make today the day that you surrender your life to him in faith and come to him. Repent of your sins. Be cleansed from them and forgiven because the Savior has died for you. And come to Christ. Invite him into your heart. And you too will meet the resurrected Christ. Okay. Now I'm going to speak to my Christian friends. All of us have gone through this process. We've all been cleansed from our sins. We've all met the the living Christ. And let me answer the question that was asked by that deacon at the beginning of our study. Why should we send our money and manpower to other countries when we have so many needs here at home. Now, I agree. Our needs at home are every bit as great and every bit as important as the needs that exist overseas. But the answer to the question, at least the first answer to the question, is that our going to foreign lands is not because of their need. We go because it's a command. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, I have some questions. The first question, did Christ suffer and die on the cross for our sins? Yes, he did. And he died not only for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Another question. Did Christ rise again to give you eternal life? Yes, he did. And on that resurrection morning, we will stand before God's throne with people who have been redeemed out from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. As we heard this morning in Sunday school, all the earth will return to worship their creator through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. Another question. Does his suffering and death on the 
death and resurrection mean nothing to you. The same one who commands us to go to all nations is the one who suffered and died in our place to bring us to God. And he is the one to whom we surrendered when we became Christians. This is the first reason why we go. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead and that we should not henceforth live for ourselves but for him who died and rose again for our, for our sake. But there is another reason that we go, and that is because we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that when Christ died on the cross, we died there with him. Now, Christ died for our sins. We died there with him to our sins. Our, our life has changed. We've turned our back on our old way of life. And we've died to them. And when Christ was raised again from the dead, we rose together with him. He died there. I mean, he rose again to give us eternal life. And we rose together with him that we might walk in newness of life. Now, what does that mean? It means that we forgive others because through the gospel we have found forgiveness. We love and are merciful to others because through the gospel we've been, we were loved by God and we are the recipients of his mercy. And we go to others because God first sent his son to us. Our life has been transformed. Those who could not forgive now can forgive. Those who did not have love in their hearts for others now do. And those who have had no desire to go with the gospel now go. You see... We've died to our old way of life. We've been raised again to a new way of living. And we go to others because our new nature demands it. That's the second reason. But let me give you the ultimate reason. And we heard about it this morning in Sunday school. We go... Because our mission to, to the world and to others is an act of worship to God. We are worshiping God through our obedience. Why is it that you swallow your pride and share the gospel with someone else? It's because Christ loved them. And we love them too. And as we share the gospel, it is an act of worship to God. A verse that we read this morning is the verse that I have as well here in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, which says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation 
and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. There will be people out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation standing before the throne shouting, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And we are participating in that worship. That's why we go. Now, how do do you know the part that you are to play in the taking of the gospel to the nations? How do you know God's will? And how do we know how we might join him in his eternal plan? It's really not centered on us. What is God's plan for my life? Really, it is centered on him and his eternal purpose. How might I join him in his eternal purpose? How do we know that? Well, consider the example that Christ gave to us. In Matthew chapter 26, now this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed and asked God to spare him from the death on the cross. My father, he said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That's in Matthew 26, verse 39. But then, let me just say, we pray like that. Lord, spare me. And it's okay. Christ prayed that too. But then Christ went on to surrender. Listen, he said, If this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see, he surrendered. And then as he lifted up his eyes and saw Judas and the soldiers coming to arrest him, God's will became plain. He saw God's will coming up in the person of Judas and the soldiers to arrest him. So then he said to his disciples, Arise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. You see... He surrendered and he saw God's will. And that's the way it is. You know, if you are asking, what is God's will for my life? But you haven't yet surrendered to him. First of all, it's the wrong question. The question is, how might I surrender to God so that I might join him in his work? But until you do that, you're just trifling. Why would God take you seriously? So, Christ surrendered. And then when he saw God's will coming, he obeyed. Would you know God's will? Then follow his example. Be like him. Pray, surrender, and obey. And as you pray and surrender your will to God, he will reveal his will for you. And then you simply obey. Should you pray that the gospel be sent to all nations? Of course you should pray that the gospel be sent to all nations. That's why the church prays every week for her missionaries. Should you give that the gospel can be sent to other nations? Of course you should give. Should you go that the gospel goes to other nations? Of course you should go. Now, let me tell you, frankly, there is a price to be paid in all of this. Grandparents 
will not have the pleasure of seeing their children or their grandchildren playing at their feet because the grandchildren are gone. Parents will stand at the airport and say goodbye to their children. And young people will give their futures to God. But you know, Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. So the question is, what part are you playing in the fulfillment of God's plan? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I once again thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross, giving us the freedom from sin, from its bondage, the freedom from guilt, the power and the desire to live for for you. We thank you for what he did. And I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they would come to you in repentance and faith. And I also pray for the uh, people of the church, that they might be full participants in your eternal plan. Guide them, Lord. Reveal to them your will. Help them to surrender in faith. And Father, I pray that the mission of our church would continue on into the next generation. I pray for the leaders of our church. I pray for uh, Brandon and Bruce and, and the elders and the deacons. I pray, Lord, that they would be of one mind and one heart, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. And may you never give their hearts rest until this area here in New England is one for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name.